Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net in collaboration with the National Security College. And this is the podcast that discusses the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. And before we get into it, I just want to give a quick shout out to Natalie Smith on Facebook, who has recently been in touch, letting us know uh, how much she enjoyed the Binary Bullets podcast. And you can get in touch with us as well to let us know what you think of some of the podcasts we've done, your thoughts on the issues that we are discussing, and any issues that you would like us to discuss in the future. And you can reach us at Twitter using Apps Policy Forum. You can get in touch with us on Facebook at the Asia Pacific Pacific Policy Society or via email using podcast at policyforum.net. We look forward to hearing back from you and also we would really appreciate if you could subscribe and maybe give us some ratings on whatever platform you access your podcasts on. What we're going to be talking about today is the radicalisation of Islamic youth in Australia. And what we're going to be really focusing on is how marginalisation, victimisation of these people uh, can actually create vulnerabilities in our society by breaking down cohesion and allowing the space for radical elements to come in and to exploit those weaknesses and those gaps and work against the Australian national interest and harm Australian national security. We're going to be talking to Miss Anusha Mushtaq. She is the founder and director of Rakib, which is an organisation, a grassroots organisation not connected to government that supports these troubled youths who may be living on the street, who may have drug and alcohol issues or psychological issues that they're dealing with. Anusha has a very interesting story of her own where she immigrated to Australia from Pakistan as a young teenager and she moved down the path herself towards violent extremism and she's going to talk to us how that experience has now framed her career in countering violent extremism and de-radicalisation of Islamic youth and any kind of youth in Australia that has fallen prey or is at risk of falling prey to extremist actors. Let's hear from Anusha now. Anusha, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Very glad to have you. You have an amazing story. So let's get right into it. You were born in Pakistan, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Which part of Pakistan were you born into? I was born in Khabar Pakhtunkhwa in Nashara. Right, and that's up in the tribal areas of yes. Pakistan. And how old were you when you moved to Australia? I was a young teenager when I moved to Australia. Right. My father was in Pakistan Air Force 
and we traveled throughout Pakistan in different areas, but also my father was posted in Libya at one stage, so I actually was in Libya for four years. Right, whereabouts in Libya were you? In uh, Tabruk and Tripoli. Now, when you moved to Australia, it set you on a quite an interesting path, which has now framed your career in countering violent extremism. Um, could you take us through that journey that you experienced as a, as a new immigrant to Australia? Yes, definitely. So I'm the first generation Australian Muslim of Pakistani origin. Um, my parents moved here when I was a young teenager. And um, I felt quite isolated. I think a lot of people think um, that um, moving towards extremism or radicalization is very much focused on poverty or socioeconomic conditions. I think my experience was that my father was uh, quite, we were quite well off in Pakistan and when he moved here, we were, uh, we experienced a lot of things which, which I missed about Pakistan. And that was having that luxury that wasn't available here because we had to start everything from scratch. My father left Air Force in Pakistan. My mom came here. She started doing nursing. um, And I used to go to school um, by foot, which was quite annoying for me. In Pakistan, we had um, staff like chauffeurs, gardeners, um, cooks. Everything was available. So I think it was was quite a big um, change for me. Even though I was going to a PF school in Pakistan, which is the Pakistan Air Force schools, and English is, all the subjects are in English. Even then, I couldn't understand the Australian accent really well. And I always had an issue with uh, my teachers, uh, what they're trying to say. And, and I always wanted to do, uh, uh, become an um, aeronautical engineer or wanted to do uh, you know, civil engineering because um, that was my passion. But I didn't get enough marks in my HSC because of that. Um, So I I did struggle, and I think I I felt really isolated. The other issue is this, that uh, people don't realize that the migrants leave an entire ecosystem behind, which they, you know, spend all their life building. And migration or uh, even being a refugee in another country, in a country which doesn't have the same culture, is, is quite a big change. And it's not only from my point of view, even my parents struggled a lot, but they wanted to contribute to Australia. And this was the thing that my father, even though he had such a prestigious job in Pakistan, he uh, went and um, got a job in corrective services. He did like, you know, started from scratch, worked in Long Bay jails, um, did the night shifts, morning shifts, just to make his family um, well settled in Australia, just to make sure that his uh, kids get um, better education. Um, even though we did have a very prestigious um, background in Pakistan, the education system and the socioeconomic conditions are not that great. The health system is not that great. So we moved here just because um, my parents wanted to give their kids a better future. My parents in Pakistan were actually quite liberal. Um, they were not that conservative. Religion has always been a part of our lives like praying five times a day, um, making sure that we fast in Ramadan. You know, I've done Hajj with my parents. We've been to Umrah a couple of times in Saudi Arabia. So I've done all that, but they were not that conservative. But what I realized when they moved here, they became more conservative. Why do you think that was? So there was a few reasons. First of all, 
um, we are only uh, three sisters. We don't have a brother. And in Pakistan or even in um, the subcontinent like India or Bangladesh, there is a fear of, um, you know, the girls don't become bad, like they don't have boyfriends. So there's a lot of that that happens within our culture. So they became more strict. So we had to, in Pakistan, we were going to co-ed schools. But when we came here, we had to go to girls' schools because my parents and my family, which was here, said, oh, no, don't send them to um, co-ed schools because, you know, it's really bad for them because they have boyfriends and um, they, they have, uh, you know, the girls will become corrupt. Do you think that your parents were uh, in a position where they were concerned about preserving their own culture, the yeah. culture they came from? Yeah, and it's about shielding your cultural identity and your religious identity because you've moved somewhere which is, um, you know, a, a very different culture and people are drinking, they're smoking or they are they're having boyfriends. I mean, I, it was funny. One day I came home and I said to my mum, oh, it's really odd that uh, one of my friend's mother has a boyfriend. How does that work? So that concept in Pakistan is 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 not really there. Having that, you know, mother having a boyfriend or uh, even divorce, it's it's much better now. I mean, people are much more um, accepting the divorce and or or you know you are in a, in, a, in a abusive relationship, so you need to get out of that. But but that wasn't in our minds. And my mum completely turned around and she said, "Oh, we don't talk about this." We don't talk about boyfriends. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of that and also getting girls married earlier so they don't become uh, corrupt or bad. They don't get into the bad habits. Um, that's very common in, in, in Pakistani uh, families. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking all the Muslims because uh, every culture is different. different. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was really uh, disheartening to me because I couldn't attend any school functions. I couldn't go to any excursions. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't even go to some of my uh, school friends' birthday parties. So the only social outlet for us was to start mixing around with the Muslim or Pakistani families, and we almost adopted uh, the friends of my uncle. And um, there was a big um, cultural gap. Because in Pakistan, uh, the Air Force or uh, armed services people are very open-minded. But over here, what I noticed, the people who were we were um, integrating with were here for 50 years or 40 years or second generation or third generation. But they came from the villages of Pakistan or from the small towns. And their culture was very different. They were very conservative compared to what my parents were. But it was the peer pressure that my parents started thinking, oh, you can't invite, you know, anyone, any boys or any uh, non-Muslim Caucasian Australians at home. So just we, we are we are moving towards discussion about radicalization, but I have been an immigrant in a non-Western country and I gravitated towards people that spoke my own language, that came from my own culture because it was comfortable to me and because it was um, I didn't have to work hard when I socialized. However, I was living in China for a number of years and the local people were very welcoming, very polite, and very interested in us as well. So if we did want to 
become a part of the local culture and experience it, there was definitely space for us to do that. Do you think that immigrants in Australia from essentially non-English speaking cultures or non-Christian cultures, do you think that they feel the same kind of availability to engage with the local community and to become, to integrate, not integrate, but, but to participate in the local culture? Yeah, definitely. The opportunity exists, but I think it's a comfort zone uh, that I'm talking about. You feel comfortable with the same kind of people, you eat the same food, you wear the same kind of clothes, and you have same kind of thinking. So that mindset is very similar, and I think it's that comfort zone that makes you more um, attracted towards your own community. And that's what I found, that my parents were very comfortable. So all the dinner parties, every Eid or every, uh, even on the Christmas, we'll have a barbecue. It's not that we're celebrating Christmas, but, you know, it's, it's a family get-together kind of thing. So, I mean, those, those things are very common. And I think that's where the ghettoization starts. But it's not limited to Muslims. I'm talking about if you look at Italians, we'll do the same thing. Greeks will do the same thing. You know, Chinese will do the same thing, like Cabramatta, did, did, for example. I did exactly the same thing when I lived in China and yeah. also when I lived in Southeast Asia. Yeah. It's, it's, it's natural to every culture. It, it is. But I think what where the problem occurs is that when you're not letting your kids go out and actually explore what Australian culture is about, it's not all about that, you know, these people have got boyfriends or they drink or they smoke. It's not about that. It's about broader than that. I mean, people have migrated to Australia for a reason. And what was the reason? To give your kids a better future. Every culture has their own pros and cons. And we shouldn't label any culture, including Muslims, Christians, Judaism, Hindus, Buddhists, with anything. I think um, everyone brings something to Australia. And that's what we should embrace. But my problem occurred because because I wasn't allowed out. I only uh, started integrating with my uh, own Pakistani or Muslim friends. And that's where I attended a camp. And the camp was organized by AFIC. And can you explain what AFIC is? It's um, Australian Federation of Islamic Council. And it was um, defunded very recently as well. So they used to run a lot of camps in that time. And I'm talking about... Um, in the early 90s. So uh, the camp was really interesting because I actually met a lot of other Muslims. For example, I only thought that, you know, Muslims around me are Pakistani, we eat the curry, and, um, you know, we watch uh, Bollywood <laughs> movies. But when I met uh, people from Melbourne, so it was a great thing. It was a great integration exercise because I got, I got to meet um, Muslims from Melbourne, from Adelaide, uh, from Canberra, from Sydney. There was heaps, very, very diverse group. Some of them, some of the girls were wearing the hijab. I wasn't wearing the hijab. But um, that's where I started thinking that I need to invest in my own religion because that was the only social outlet for me. Um, and I took that as, as, as a very serious thing. And I said, well, yeah, my mom want, wants me to be a good girl. She wants me to be a good Muslim. She wants me to be, um, you know, uh, uh, holding on to my uh, cultural and religious values. And that's where it started. Um, so, yeah, when we finished the camp, I had a great time. I made great friends. And then we went back and I started attending these sessions in Lakemba. At that time, Lakemba had um, 
few houses around. And I still remember we used to go into these group sessions and um, and talk about Islam and talk about uh, our, our religion. And, and it was almost like a dawah. Dawah is the invitation to Islam. And it was almost like I was a reborn Muslim. And I really liked the fact that I was actually getting out of the house and I was meeting more uh, Muslim uh, women and men and very, uh, very religious people. Uh, some of the guys, I still remember the imam there was said that, um, you know, we need to do, we need to promote our religion. We need to do tabligh. Tabligh uh, jamaat was uh, uh, pretty prominent at that time. And there were a few uh, uh, Muslim um, brothers. I remember they wore the white clothing as you're going to Hajj. So in Hajj, you are only allowed to wear white. And they said, we're going to go, um, you know, visit from uh, city to city, from interstate to interstate, uh, and spread the word of Islam. We we're going to do da'wah. So I was very impressed. I was just like, wow, Jazakallah. Jazakallah means like, you know, God bless them that they're actually doing uh, such amazing work. But then I started uh, mixing around some other people who I didn't realize were quite conservative to the point where uh, they started saying that uh, I have to do istikhara. Istikhara is the prayer where you sleep on the floor and you make this dawa uh, or prayers where you actually uh, see yourself somewhere. And I saw myself wearing a hijab and I saw myself wearing, you know, an abaya. So this is what I did next day. I got up and I started wearing the hijab. And my mom was just like, wow, what's happened to you? Why are you wearing a hijab? Because uh, Pakistani people don't really wear the hijab. It's very Arab culture. But I did start wearing the hijab and my mom said, oh, OK, that's a bit odd. But she didn't like care. Uh, I, I started praying five times a day. And even uh, my friend said that, you know, your if your parents have any photos in the house, remove that because that is idol worshipping. It's um, shirk. Shirk means like uh, comparing Allah to someone else. And that is a, that is uh, a kufr. Kufr, it means like uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not allowed in, 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 in Islam. So, yeah, I, I came home and I said, oh, we need to remove all the photos. Uh, and then I said, oh, we can't watch TV. We can't have any person, like it's idol worshipping. So any photos or anything you see on the TV is haram, is not allowed in Islam. I also started um, arguing with my mom why she's doing nursing, because um, she's actually touching uh, men. And she was just like, wow, that's a bit odd. Um, being conservative is, is nothing wrong. Right. You know, you're you're actually praying more and you're a devout Muslim. I don't think so. There's anything wrong with that. But as, as you've said, conservatism and fundamentalism is, isn't an issue. And you find it all, yeah. all through many cultures, yeah. uh, many religions. Where does it start to transition? And when did you start to tra- transition towards a radicalised as, uh, element yeah. of religion? Yeah, so that that's where I saw that the groups, the Salafi Jihadi groups in um in Lakemba, the sessions I was attending, the core message was, look what they have done. Look what they have done to us. And they means like the West, the uh, Caucasian Australians. And, you know, basically it's the white people. Sorry to use that word. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be racist here, but that, that, was, that was the core. And, um, you know, they said that, look what they're doing in, in, in Palestine. Look what they're doing in Afghanistan. They're killing innocent Muslims. They're killing our brothers and sisters. Uh, and we need to rise up and fight this uh, 
fight in this war. So it was just like this real empowerment that you got. They called us the ambassadors of Allah, that we are superior than even other Muslims because they're not following their religion properly. So I used to come home and I used to argue with my mom that you have deviated from your religion. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Not wearing a hijab, you're not actually a devout wife uh, because you're going out and working. You're wearing a skirt as a nurse and showing your legs, and this is unacceptable in Islam. And that was the thing which was so amazing because I thought I'm better than others. Mm. And I'm much, my, my, my heart is pure. And I'm actually moving towards something which is a justified cause, which means I am actually going to make a difference mm. and going to prove to the wider society that I have done something that others can't. And, and, and what were some of the thoughts in terms of um, uh, acting out on your radicalised uh, thinking? What were some of the things that were on offer to you to perform? What were some of the thoughts that went through your head on how you could become this ambassador, how you could rise up in the words of these uh, extreme preachers? Yeah. And I mean, those, those are the things I still remember. One day I was travelling on the train and I was wearing the hijab and I was sitting with my friend and people were passing on remarks or looking at us. And I actually thought in my head, I was just like, oh, you fools, you've got no idea how good I am because, you know, I am more connected to my Allah, to my God, more than you are. You are just naive and your culture has got nothing that offers me any sense of security or sense of empowerment. But my religion does that. So I don't need anybody else. So that they are the things that that's the thing when you start moving towards those parts, it, it becomes quite um, scary where it's going to end. So with with some of these um, more extremist elements that are that are mixed into the wider uh, Islamic community, not just in Australia and around the world, where how does it move from um, taking you to an, uh, a, a rather fundamentalist and conservative space in your religion to actually crossing that line to mm. acting. So whether that be uh, travelling to a conflict zone somewhere else in the world uh, or whether that be planning a violent act, how, how do they take these people that may feel whether they're marginalised or, or isolated within the community they're living in, how do they take them from being a, finding an attachment and finding somewhere where they belong and meaning, how do they take them from that space to acting out? So, I mean, that, that's the path, that's the start of the path which I'm talking about based on my story. But the second step is that, um, you know, some of the imams were showing beheading weddings in around in Lakemba and um, showing that, you know, how we could actually go and take an action, how we could actually go to Afghanistan and join the cause, fight uh, this uh, war against Muslims 
and uh, you know be that be that person who's actually made a difference. So it's called a jihad. I mean, people confuse jihad, um, and you know that, that jihad is not all about fight. The first jihad in Islam is jihad al-nafs, which means having a control on your nerves, which a lot of these extremists don't promote. In, in their head, the jihad is to fight for your religion, fight for your brothers and sisters who are getting killed in Palestine, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. That's that's the biggest, big misconception. And I think jihad has been hijacked uh, by terrorists. The, the name jihad and Islam has been hijacked. And that's the biggest issue that I found, uh, I mean, I find now is, is that looking back, that jihad was promoted as if we are going to take an action. We are going to go. It doesn't matter if you are going to go and get married to a, uh, a militant in, in, in Afghanistan, or you are going to actually go and join that, those, those militants to fight the West. So, I mean, that, that, that was the sense of empowerment. And that's where I started thinking, and I used to, you know, be in that group of girls where we used to say that it would be amazing, it will be so good to go and, um, you know, be married to this, uh, a, a man who wears this turban and he's dressed up in this black robe and, um, you know, he's got a big beard and he looks like a bad boy with... Um, with a gun or a grenade, it's it's just so fascinating. So that, that's quite interesting. In our culture, our bad boys are usually usually wearing leather jackets, riding <laughs> motorcycles, smoking cigarettes, yeah. and things like that. Um, and they are certainly the furthest thing from a religious person that you could find. Can I ask what pulled you away from actually taking that action to to go to Afghanistan or or a combat zone? to marry the Islamic bad boy. Yeah, so I think uh, my mum was quite concerned about me. There was a lot of this, um, you know, anger in me and I would just create a fuss over nothing. And, you know, those were the things my my mum was really concerned. And she said, uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted you to be religious, but you're constantly fighting, you're constantly like, you know, I mean, I remember at that time when my sister was trying to go out of the house with, with, with a skirt, and I pulled her hair and I said, how dare you? How dare you even step out of this house and wear this skirt? So those were the things that my mom started becoming really alarmed. Um, and the funny thing is, is that um, in Pakistan, um, the fix for anything is, oh, I'm going to get her married. So she can actually forget about all this craziness and actually get involved with her husband, have children and actually. So, yeah, she took me to Pakistan, tried to get me engaged. Um, I had the nikah at that time with my um, first cousin. So, yeah, we, we are allowed to get married to our first cousin. I wasn't going to bring it up. but. <laughs> and I think um, the reason why I started drifting away from this was not only my mum, but also, like, um, my mum was quite concerned about the hate for the West. And she said, we didn't move here so you can hate people. We moved here so you can have a, you can go to school. It's, it's really interesting. You, you've um, painted a picture where uh, it seems to be a lot of your parents' influence that, that set you off on a path towards radicalisation, unknowingly so. Mm. But it's also your parents' influence that has pulled you back. So your 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 mother especially has been able to recognise, you know, probably without 
focusing on it or directly knowing that she was, but she's been able to recognise the, the signs of radicalisation and and the threat of of moving in that that space. Um, what what can parents, what can school teachers, and what can friends look for today in terms of of identifying the first signs of radicalisation and what can they do to act on that? So there has been a lot of cases um, which really don't even get reported to um, the national security or intelligence or policing where the parents or the family or family friends have gotten involved and pulled them out of that mindset. Because, I mean, we have to understand that at that time, I didn't have an iPhone. I was not connected to the internet. Now we're connected and we live in this world of internet and we can't be keeping an eye on them constantly. So this has happened, like, um, you know, the kids are watching something on the internet that Islamic State has posted or Al-Qaeda has posted and they're getting radicalized. Very similar, isolation. They've come, come from Pakistan, they've been in this country, both parents have started working and they feel isolated. They can't really integrate into the broader Australian society. You know, the parents need to understand that it shouldn't be about the fear of others. It shouldn't be about the us and them narrative. Within our own communities, we create this us and them narrative. And then we expect our kids not to get isolated. Also, the other thing is this in our communities, marginalization and isolation within the communities, like mental health issues, homosexuality, drug and alcohol issues, not really recognized. And, you know, a kid can't even go to an imam and say, look, I have this problem. I am a homosexual. I don't know what to do. Uh, I have got drug and alcohol problem because there's an element of respect. So this element of respect is a killer because you can't really talk to other people in your own communities. And this is where the teachers should start realizing what challenges these kids are going through. The government should realize what challenges these kids are going through. Instead of saying, you know, Muslim, all the Muslim kids are getting radicalized, try to understand from the grassroots level, what are their challenges? Are they working? How many brothers and sisters they have? You know, the parents are struggling to make their means in Australia. They want to have a good future with, for these kids. But isolation is not the answer. And isolation within the community is not the answer. And isolation from the Australian government is not the answer. So you, you now work countering violent extremism and countering radicalisation and so on. Can you talk about if you're able to craft the government response, a policy for getting ahead of the curve in terms of radicalisation within, within Australia's borders, uh, what would that policy look like? So the policy, I think, um, I mean, from the CVE policy, what I've seen in the past, I know the de-radicalisation programs, some of them haven't worked. And there's a simple reason for that. I mean, if, we, if somebody is getting radicalised, uh, they, they should be consulting a Muslim scholar, not even an imam so much. And there's a big difference between a Muslim scholar who's well-read, who understands different... Uh, school of thought of Islam. So they should be actually consulting the Islamic scholars or people 
on the ground, involving grassroots organisations. So just, just, just to delve into that point a little bit, are you saying that the government should be sponsoring these programs or this should be something that should be coming organically out of the Islamic community in Australia? The reason why I ask that is because I've read uh, previous works where there seems to be this problem with anything that's attached to the government is seen as um, fake or as a government conspiracy or something like that. So how do you think that that challenge should be approached? So the Muslim community doesn't like CVE, doesn't like anything to do with counterterrorism because they think it's all about surveillance on Muslim women and kids and men. So that's where the problem occurs. And I do remember... There was a time where they were thinking of actually putting a surveillance on kids in Sydney at Punchbowl's, Punchbowl Granville High School and other schools. So this is all surveillance. And how does a Muslim kid who is already feeling marginalized with whatever is happening in the media, you know, people calling Muslims a terrorist, how does that kid feel? He's trying to assimilate into the Australian society. He's trying his best to assimilate within his own community. So that kid already is feeling really sad and feeling really marginalized. So CVE has had a really bad name within the Muslim community. And it's also about, uh, you know, some people have said that the de-radicalization programs should be run by the Muslims, especially by the grassroots organizations. Um, And funding, yes, there's a big problem with the funding because the moment... CVE funds some program, uh, Muslim sees as, oh, wow, you've actually gone and been on the other side. So there's a bit of a challenge there. And I think it's, it's been created uh, by the previous CVE policies. Why is it all about Muslims? Why is it not generally about radicalization, about ultra-right-wing groups or jihadi Salafi terrorists? It shouldn't be about Muslims. And that's where the problem has occurred. You mentioned before that you came from Pakistan and you thought that um, you were what uh, a Muslim was and then you've realised that it's it's that there's Muslims from the Middle East that don't mm. eat curries, that maybe don't watch Bollywood and so on. Um, so what you're saying is that there is no monolithic Islamic uh, character or nature or identity. It's, it, there's a lot of culture mixed into it as well. Do you think that there is that understanding of the complexity um, of Islam and uh, do you think that that is required to have a, a proper um, and effective approach to CVE? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people don't understand how complex Islam is. And I'm talking about when the policymakers make policy and if it is targeted towards Muslims, the general population starts thinking that it is Muslims who are terrorists, right? But if you look at Islam, it is like uh, as complex as Christianity. I mean, we've got two major um, denominations in Islam, which are Sunni and Shia. Then we've got several school of thought in Sunni, like Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Wahhabi, Salafi. Like, you can go on. And it's, it's all about how the interpretation of Quran and Hadith is. And uh, this is the problem that a lot of Muslims have, is that the more you marginalize Muslims, the more terrorism will will rise. Because that is exactly what the terrorists want. Islamic State want this divide. They want this us and them narrative. So they can tap into these isolated people or marginalized people. And they say, like, you know, you can come and join our Khilafat or our cause because it is justified now. And that's where a lot of education 
around countering violent extremism and counterterrorism should be there. I mean, they should actually know what are the different school of thoughts of Islam. How does, why is it that Jihadi Salafi is promoting terrorism? Why? That's, it's a simple thing. It's about how they do the interpretation of Quran and how they do the interpretation of Hadith. And the way they do the interpretation and say it is justified to kill the kuffar because it happened thousands of years ago. And it's the direct interpretation. So that's what the government needs to understand. What is the core of this problem? How do we get into the grassroots level not having this top-down approach. We need to have a bottom-up approach, and that is very much needed. We do have a lot of uh, um, disruption strategies. We do have a lot of strategies um, that policing and intelligence community uses. We know how to, like, you know, catch them and put them in jails. Another problem is uh, radicalization within the, within the jails. That is, that is a big problem because they're not going to get any better unless we start involving Muslim scholars. So Ahmed Khalani, I have a great respect for him. And he is a chaplain for Supermax Jail, and I've met him a few times. Now, we need people like that to actually work with the government. We need people like for myself, who have been through this path, who can actually educate people that why does this happen and how to stop it. You you are the founder and director of Rakib, which is, from what I can see, a, a doing work at the grassroots level. Yeah. Could you, just to wrap up, could you tell us what that organisation is and what it is doing? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, based on my personal story, I actually thought about it um, and I said, look, I want to, I want to make an organisation that is not uh, with the bigger organizations. It's not with the imams. It's actually for the youth. So everyone who has who I have in my organization represents youth. And what I wanted was people who've actually been through something themselves, who've actually come from refugee background, who have had challenges, because we're fighting for a cause. We want to uh, make sure that these kids who are so naive and who are so... Um, feeling so uh, isolated, don't get caught by these radicals who are doing dawa on the streets sometimes. They come in the, in the nighttime, and it is very common. I mean, they go to some of the outreach programs that I have attended, and they try to allure these kids into their cause because they're already feeling so isolated. So this is the main reason why I started Rakib Task Force. Um, I started from the grassroots level to the point where I only want youth who have been through something themselves, who can actually be those young champions. It's about being that right model. It's about being that mentor who can actually take these kids and empower them. It's about empowering these kids before they go too far, before they go and start getting integrated into you know, gang-affiliated issues, drug and alcohol, radicalization. Yeah, it's all the, I mean, I, I find it all very similar parts. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fantastic work. Anusha Mushtaq, thank you very much for coming on the National Security Podcast and telling us your story. Thank you so much, Chris, and thank you, National Security College.
Thanks very much to Anoushe for coming in on the National Security Podcast and discussing such an important and prescient issue with us. Be sure not to miss out on the regular Policy Forum podcast coming out this Friday where we'll be talking about irrigation, water efficiency and the raging controversy around the Murray-Darling Basin Program. And we'll be back to speak to you in two weeks ourselves with another National Security Podcast. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.